0: Chapter 10 Across the Bite Hurry up, son, you're dreadfully slow. The stewardess responsible for the children on the SS Victoria patted Stanford on the back as she spoke to him. The children were all given a bowl of porridge for breakfast and nothing more until they ate it. Winifred couldn't stomach porridge, so when Stanford finished his bowl of porridge, he passed his empty bowl to Winifred, who put her porridge in his bowl. Stanford ate Winifred's porridge and then passed his empty bowl to Eric, who didn't like porridge either. By the time the stewardess spoke to Stanford, he was struggling through his third bowl. Laura was sick as the SS Victoria rolled across the Bight, a very rough stretch of the southern ocean. Stanford and Eric, who were better sailors than Laura, ran up and down the deck. One day, Harold came back to the cabin to discover a steward helping himself to a piece of the Christmas cake given to the family by the members of the Adelaide Church. The family had Christmas Day on board. Harold wrote up an account of the trip in April 1919, and it appeared in the Australasian record of May 26, 1919. It is now a little over three months since we bade farewell to the many kind friends in South Australia, "'to take up our work in this field. "'We had planned to leave Adelaide by train for Perth, "'but the Lord overruled it otherwise. "'We spent the whole of Christmas week on the water "'and a very enjoyable time we had. "'There were about 100 passengers on board "'and a more sociable lot of people one would not wish to meet. "'I was asked to conduct two services on the Sunday in the saloon "'to which the second-class passengers were invited.' My subject in the morning was great prophetic image and it would have done the readers of record good to have seen the interest manifested by both stewards and passengers as I hung up the colored symbol chart and explained from this most wonderful line of prophecy the history of our world, revealing the astonishing truth that the fifth universal kingdom was soon to be set up. In the evening service, the second coming of Christ was the theme and the people again listened with great interest. Then on Christmas morning I was again asked to take the service, so I took the opportunity of speaking on the life of Christ from the manger to the throne. The good Lord gave power in the delivery of each subject, and the Spirit of God came very near. Several passengers came to me after the services and said they would like to hear more of the prophecies. Some addresses I obtained to follow up with literature later, we could readily see now why we came by steamer. On this boat were passengers for India and Java. Some had been to India, had been to our treatment rooms there, and had been treated by Nurse Manson. These spoke well of our work there. Brother O. Hellestrand, Harold's assistant at Angaston, and brother Arthur Knight met the family as they disembarked in Fremantle. Harold found a house for the family in Fraser Street, East Fremantle, It was a weatherboard house with a big veranda on the front and side. There was a big gum tree near the double gate and two almond trees in the backyard. The tent was pitched in East Fremantle, only a stone's throw from where Pastor Michaels conducted a series of meetings six years before, and the mission commenced in January 1919. Harold was assisted by Brethren Hellestrand, Shapcott and Knight and Sister Reed. The First World War was over and the mood of the people had lifted. There was a wonderful spirit among the workers. Writing several months after the mission commenced, Harold wrote in the Australasian Record, We like our field, our fellow labourers and the dear people of God over here. What a wonderful truth we have. How it binds human hearts together. What will it be when the Saviour comes to gather all his loved ones home? In his report of the boat trip to Fremantle, Harold also reported on the progress of the mission. Our tent is still standing, but will soon have to come down on account of the wet season setting in. We have held 46 meetings in it, with an average attendance of 18. Our offerings have averaged 8 shillings. Up to the present we have 11 keeping Sabbath, and as many more interested from this effort. In conjunction with this mission we have been holding lunch hour talks at two large workshops in North Fremantle, We speak for 20 minutes, and it would do you good to see the interest these men take in the subjects presented. I say men, but I should include women as well, for one of these places happens to be a boot and tannery factory, and about 30 girls are employed. Many of them come into the shed and listen and have never missed a meeting. Some of these employees have attended our tent services, and are amongst the interested ones. We supply literature gratis after each address, which is eagerly taken. Both Brother Hellestrand and Brother Knight have taken up this line of work, and the Lord has stood by them. They have enjoyed this new experience and entered into it heartily. The children attended the East Fremantle 7th Avenue School. When the mission in Fremantle ended, the family moved to a little cottage in Wharton Street, Cottesloe Beach, and a Perth suburb across the Swan River. Harold and Arthur Knight commenced a mission in a hall in Cottesloe on May 18. There were over 80 persons in attendance, of whom only 20 were church members. By August 1919, Harold and Arthur were contemplating the establishment of a Sabbath school in Cottesloe Beach. Opposite the house in Wharton Street was a convalescent home, and on the corner of the street was a large building for children who were deaf and who could not speak. The house was on very sandy soil. To make it easier to walk on, Harold brought up seaweed from the beach and spread it around the yard. Timber slats were in place around the side of the house. The front veranda was concrete with a closed surround, and above it was a canvas blind. The neighbours called the house Bug Villa because it was infested with bedbugs. Every wash day, all the bed sheets were taken into the backyard and scalding soap suds were poured over them. The lady who owned the house said that the family must have brought the bedbugs, but that was certainly not true, as the walls had been painted before the family moved in, and bedbugs could be seen painted onto the walls. When Harold saw the big yard with loose black sand, he said, ''I think I can grow watermelons here.'' When the melons were about six inches long, he collected some bottles from the beach, filled them with sugared water... Split the stalk of the melons, put a piece of flannel in the split, and then threw the cork into the bottle. The bottles were shaded so they did not become too hot. Harold kept the water levels up in the bottles, and the result was beautiful sweet watermelons. One of the melons grew to a great size. A few fowls were also kept in the backyard. The house was close to the beach, and the children loved playing there. Harold enjoyed a regular swim and found it refreshing in his busy schedule. While living in Wharton Street, all but Phyllis came down with the Spanish flu, or bubonic plague as it was called. Winifred started with tonsillitis, which lasted for a couple of days, and then went down with the plague properly, with a temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, or 40 degrees Celsius, and it stayed up for nearly two weeks. Winifred's hair began to fall out, so she had it clipped, and wore a cap until it grew again. At the top end of Wharton Street was a railway line. One day when Harold and Anne were walking home from the railway station, they noticed two little boys going back and forth over the railway line, seeing how many times they could do it before the train came. To their horror, Harold and Anne discovered that the two little boys were Stanford and Eric. On May 19, 1921, Anne gave birth to Cecil Raymond Knightley, the third son and sixth child in the family. Raymond was the first of Anne's children to be born in hospital. Previously, the children were born at home. While a baby, Raymond began to lose weight and a neighbor suggested to Anne that she try giving him goat's milk instead of cow's milk. Anne followed the suggestion and soon Raymond was thriving again. One day, Stanford and Eric were taking Raymond for a walk in the pram. The street sloped down to the beach. They decided to see how far they could let the pram move away from them down the slope before running and catching it. They did this successfully for a time, but eventually they let it move too far away from them to catch it, and the pram continued to the end of the street where it overturned in the sand. When they reached the overturned pram... Little Raymond was lying in the sand. He had sand all over him, including in his mouth, nose and ears. Stanford and Eric enlisted support from a neighbour to clean him up before returning home. Harold received money from his father's estate while living in Wharton Street. He contributed some of this money to build a new brick church for the church company that had been raised up by the mission. As Harold preached at 7th Avenue churches on Sabbaths, He asked the elders for permission to request the congregation to pledge amounts to help pay for his new Cottesloe church building. Invariably, he got the same answer. Well, our church is still in debt. Harold responded in turn, If they pledge enough to clear your debt, can I have what's left over? In this way, many of the churches cleared their debt, and Cottesloe church was dedicated debt-free. To raise funds for the Cottesloe church, Harold visited the business houses to solicit donations. During this time he received a letter saying, I believe you are collecting money to build a church. If you ring this number, ask for Mr Fox and you will hear something to your advantage. Harold went to a local shop to make the call. The girl in the shop tried to tell Harold that he was ringing the zoo as she knew the number. The call confirmed that he had indeed been given the number of the zoo So he hung up. On the way home, Harold chuckled loudly to himself. As he was passing a big hedge, a familiar head popped up. It was the local pharmacist. What's the big joke? the pharmacist asked. Harold told him how he'd been fooled and both laughed together. Then Harold asked the pharmacist, Now we've had a good laugh, how about a donation for the church? He was given £10 or about a month's salary for the average worker, so the practical joke proved providential. For some years, Harold used evangelistic charts available from the church. One of the converts from the Cottesloe mission was a French artist, Brother Palat, who painted a number of charts in oil paint for Harold. There were charts illustrating the major prophecies of Daniel, chapters 2, 7 and 8, and Revelation chapters 13 and 14. The symbols depicted in these prophetic visions included the strange image of a man and various animals and beasts. There was a large chart illustrating Eden lost to Eden restored and another showing the cross that bridged the gap between earth and heaven. Some were large enough to span a platform while others hung on a special stand. A farewell present from the Cottesloe members was a large case made to order in which Harold could store and transport them. When the family shifted, carriers invariably joked about the resemblance of the case to a coffin. After Cottesloe, the family moved to Karagullen, in the hills to the southeast of Perth. Karagullen was past Bickley, where the church operated Carmel College. To get to Karagullen, the family went by train on the switchback or zigzag railway the family moved into a little two-room cottage on brother Norman Ferguson's orchard. Norman's sister, Mrs. Lansky, was a war widow, so he had built the cottage for her right beside his house. The cottage was not big enough for the family, so Laura and Winifred slept on the veranda of Norman Ferguson's house. The children walked several miles to school with other children, including the Hansford Boys, the Stanleys and the Lanskys. Stanford and Eric made bamboo water pistols, complete with plungers, and delighted in surprising the unwary who ventured within their range as they laid in wait for their victims. Harold held studies with the Abbott family who lived a few miles away, and to get there he rode a horse. Often it was so dark as he rode home he couldn't see, so he gave the horse the reins and allowed the horse to bring him home safely the horse's ability to bring him home in the dark added to Harold's appreciation of these magnificent creatures. Harold attended the Western Australian Camp Meeting, which was held at Forest Park, Mount Lawley, a Perth suburb, between March 9 and 19 in 1922. The park was lent by Perth City Council for the occasion, although the council was aware that there would be opposition to granting the use of the park for this purpose. 130 tents were pitched just a few minutes' drive by car from the city. When the tents were pitched, the Sunday Times printed an article of protest. A few days after this protest appeared, the conference received a letter from a prominent resident of the district in which he declared that the community was honoured by the presence of the camp meeting and repudiated the sentiments expressed in the article. He expressed his appreciation for the personal benefit he and his family had received from attending the meetings, enclosing half a guinea as a donation toward foreign missions. A guinea was one pound and one shilling. Half a guinea was ten shillings and sixpence. It was quite a sum when a worker might earn a guinea in a week. The conference workers were greatly encouraged by this and the encouragement was strengthened when later in the meetings other correspondence was received from nearby residents expressing similar sentiments. Good interest was manifested by the public in the presentations from the platform. On the last night of the meetings, Harold spoke on the subject, Why I am a Seventh-day Adventist. A large and appreciative audience listened attentively for an hour and a half while Harold related the story of how he became a Seventh-day Adventist and presented the evidence that compelled him to leave the church of his childhood. Although softly spoken in conversation, Harold's voice rang through the tent as he delivered his topic. The interest generated by the Mount Lawley camp meeting led to a request for Harold to conduct a follow-up tent mission at Mount Lawley, so the family moved from Carragallan to West Leederville, a nearby suburb to Mount Lawley. Harold purchased a house in Tate Street, He also purchased a cow and a pony and sulky for the family and a smith's wheel, a motorized bicycle to assist his work. The children attended the Subiaco Church School. Harold put his usual energy into the tent mission in Mount Lawley and soon a number of people stepped out to embrace the Seventh-day Adventist faith. When the conference president, Pastor H.E. Piper, addressed the audience at the mission in July... He was met by what he described as a splendid audience. At the same time, Pastor Robinson was experiencing similar results in Albany. Harold attended the 11th session of the Australasian Union Conference, which convened in the large pavilion of the Royal Agricultural Showgrounds in Sydney on September 26, 1922. At the conference, Harold was invited to connect with the Victorian Conference. After three years in Western Australia, Harold was returning to a conference where he had spent so much time in earlier years. Harold returned to West Lederville and began to prepare for the move to Victoria. The house was sold and brother and sister Baird purchased the cow. In November, Harold learned that his Bible teacher at Avondale College, Pastor Stephen Haskell, had passed away on October 10 at the Paradise Valley Sanitarium in California at the age of 89. Pastor Haskell was an inspiration to those who knew him and Harold mourned the passing of such a great man of God. In December, the family said goodbye to church members, friends and associates and boarded the SS Katoomba in Fremantle, travelling over Christmas across the Great Australian Bight and arriving in Melbourne in time for the erection of tents for the Victorian camp meeting that was to be held in Baldwin, Melbourne in January of the new year.